series this morning that we've been doing, Bill Nye Reads Genesis. And just as I conclude this morning, I do want to say just a big thank you for hanging with me and listening. I know uh, we've kind of been on a long stretch, starting with Ancient Inc. and moving on to Bill Nye uh, Reads Genesis in terms of some thoughts that might be challenging or just different than what you're used to or grown up with. And uh, so anyway, I just want to say thank you for your patience in that and hanging with me and just your consideration and we'll be good no matter where you are in the end of all this. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. So I'm looking forward to that. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to just study the Gospel of Mark until Father's Day. And I'm looking forward to that and getting my Jesus preach on uh, during that series of what we're going to do. So that's kind of where we're headed over the next couple of weeks. But uh, if you've missed any weeks here in terms of the Bill Nye Reads Genesis, I'd encourage you to go back online to the podcast and take a listen to any of the ones that you missed. And in it, uh, let me just kind of give you a quick review. What we're doing is we're looking at Genesis 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, through the lens of a scientist, more specifically, Bill Nye, the science guy. And what I'm contending is that if Bill Nye were to read Genesis 1 to 11, he would be struck by how unscientific it was in regards to description, and then based on everything he knows about the sciences, from astronomy, cosmology, paleontology, archaeology, chemistry, biology, physics, the fossil record, etc., he would have a very difficult time accepting Genesis chapter 1 to 11 as literal science and history as we understand science, and by that I mean the scientific method, and principles of historiography here in 2017. In other words, I'm just not sure Bill Nye would buy it, so to speak. And if you think Bill Nye is alone, what I am contending is, is that many people have struggled through the difficulties of reconciling their faith and science. And the Genesis account in the Bible and what they know to be true in regards to the scientific evidences around them oftentimes has resulted in a faith crisis. I would say Bill Nye at best would be a huge skeptic. Now, in response to this, I think that the Christian has basically one or two options available to them. One is you attempt to use science to argue with Bill Nye. You attempt to prove that the scientific evidences are really there that confirm a 6,000-year-old earth, a global flood, an ark that's 450 feet long and contain at least two, if not seven, of 7,000 different kinds of animals. And this is what many have attempted to do. I have referenced Ken Ham and the Creation Museum. But if you do this, in my humble opinion, I think you will lose scientifically. You simply do not have the scientific evidences on your side to prove that Genesis 1-11 to is a scientific and historical account of the origins of the universe. And I would say you yield too much to science by doing that. It ultimately allows science to be the final adjudicator of our story, and I would say science doesn't have the tools to be the final arbiter because Genesis was never written and intended to be crammed through the filter of science and history as we know it in 2017. Your other option, and the one I'm contending for, is that you should read Genesis as it was actually intended, theologically. It is a polemic offered by ancient Israel to combat other creation stories and to express their truth in the one and only God, Yahweh. And how they expressed that truth was through the vehicle of a particular genre of literature that was very common to the world of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, the world of Israel and Mesopotamia and Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. This is the world that Israel lived in. 
And what I would say, even going back to our Ancient Ink series, is that an incarnational God would reveal His divine truth incarnationally, just like Jesus, to people who lived in 500 B.C. Of course, He would use their genre, their means of communication, their understanding, their worldview, and their perspective. That's why if you were to ask questions like, well, where are all the dinosaurs in the Bible? Right? And what happens is kids get interested in dinosaurs quickly, right? Because they're amazing, like they're fascinating. Especially if you take them to the museum, take them to the field museum, they'll walk there in the lobby and see what is the dinosaur Sue and the boat. Like, I mean, kids get, and they naturally then go back to their Sunday school classes or to their Bibles and read and try to figure out, well, where are the dinosaurs? And what you will discover is that the Bible doesn't say one word about dinosaurs, not one thing. They aren't mentioned on the ark. They aren't mentioned in any passage of the Old Testament. And what I will say is, you do have a small group of Christians committed to forcing the Bible into modern scientific and historical paradigms, and they've tried to suggest that in the book of Job, it mentions these uh, words Leviathan and Behemoth, and maybe those were dinosaurs, but it's not. As they try to put together that dinosaurs and humans actually lived at the same time, even though there's absolutely no scientific evidence to support such a contention, and therefore that dinosaurs must have been on the ark. My answer is this. Dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Bible because no author of the Bible even knows what a dinosaur is. They have absolutely no concept of dinosaurs. They've never seen one, never encountered one, not in real life, not in a museum. It wasn't until 1820 that the discovery of fossils that we even came to learn that dinosaurs even existed on our planet millions of years ago. And that is why they're not in the Bible. And why would we expect them to be mentioned? And we get this weird view of the Bible that God just kind of whispered in the ears of the writers to dictate things like, I want you to mention dinosaurs. Dino what? Dinosaurs. Well, what is that? Well, you know, the Brontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, God wouldn't mention them because no one has a clue to what he would even be talking about. And God allows human authors to write from their style, their grammar, their personality, their worldview, and experience. The Bible is incarnational. And so they do. They write from their own experience, which includes via the genres they would have been most familiar with. Now, I want to introduce you to, um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, do you remember me mentioning that they discovered in the mid-1800s a library? uh, It was of King Ashurbanipal, and you might remember this slide He reigned from 668 to 627 B.C., so that's like thousands of years ago. It's a long time ago. In ancient Nineveh, which was the capital city of ancient Assyria, the same Assyria that we read about in the Old Testament, which is now located in modern-day Iraq. And they discovered thousands of clay tablets in this library in what's called the Akkadian language. That was the language of Babylon, the language of Assyria. And in the discovery, and many like discoveries since, we have found other creation accounts and flood stories that were very common genre in the ancient Near East, in the days of the Old Testament. So this is why when you read Genesis 1-11, to you should read it in light of the genre that I think was intended. It is an ancient genre that we found many examples. So I shared several weeks ago with you the story of Enuma Elish, which was the Babylonian creation story. And in it, it has great similarities to our creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. But as Israel tells her story, the point is to use that genre of a creation account to provide a theological rebuttal to the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Marduk is not God. And even though the Babylonians think he's the chief of the Babylonian gods and the pantheon of gods, he is not responsible for the heavens and the earth by defeating his great-grandmother Tiamat. But Yahweh is responsible 
And he didn't do it via some violent conflict between the gods. There's only one God, and he spoke everything into existence through the power of his word. And the story with its days of creation speak of a God created with intentionality, purpose, and order. This is the point of Genesis. It's theological. And this was a very ancient, pre-modern, pre-scientific way of addressing questions of ultimate origins and meaning. They told stories to communicate the truths of who we are and where do we come from. And it's in this context that the genre that Israel speaks about their God, Yahweh. And what happens is we've discovered many other texts that fit into that same genre. So when you read the story of Noah in the Bible, so when you get to Genesis chapter 6, which we began last week, 6, 7, and 8, it will look a lot like other stories that are also circulating at the same time the story of Noah is. Noah is not the only story about a catechismic flood. There are many ancient Akkadian versions of a flood story as well as an even older Sumerian version, but I want to take a look at just two so you can kind of see them with, with the back to back. One is called, uh, the main character is Atrahasis is the name, Atrahasis. It's another flood story that was found, and Atrahasis which is also the name of the story's Noah-like figure, tells of a flood that was the result of a decree of the god Enlil, who persuaded the other gods to destroy humans because they were making too much noise, right? And you might have felt this, right? Sometimes it seems legitimate to me, especially on a Saturday morning if you're out mowing your yard before 9 a.m., I wouldn't mind a god sending a flood to destroy you. That's where I'm at. Atrahasis, through the help of the god Inki, escapes the wrath of Enlil by building a large boat in which to save humanity. So Atrasus built an ark and loaded with two of each kind of animal. Does that sound familiar? And after the waters subside, Enlil and the other gods realize their mistake and they regret what they've done. They come to regret the flood that destroyed everything else, and yet there's no way they can undo it. At this point, Atrasus comes out of his ark and he makes sacrifices to the gods. Does that sound familiar to you? Enlil, though only just before, wishing he had not destroyed humanity, is now furious that Inki, another god, helped Atrasus escape and is still alive. And Inki explains himself to the assembly and the gods descend, eat of Atrasus' sacrifice. And Inki then proposes a new solution to the problem of human overpopulation. He creates new creatures who will not be as fertile as the last. And from now on, it is declared that there will be some women who cannot bear children. And there will also be demons who will snatch infants away and cause miscarriages, and women consecrated to the gods who will have to remain virgins. And Atrahasis himself is carried away to paradise to live apart from these new humans, beings whom Nintu then creates. Now, it's a totally different story, but you can see similarities in the narrative with the Noah story. But what is the story of Atrahasis doing? It is using story to answer questions like explaining human mortality and misfortunes that attend childbirth, even the death of one's child. And since overpopulation and the resultant noise had once brought down the terrible deluge which almost destroyed humanity, the loss of one's child could perhaps be more easily borne with the knowledge that such a loss helped preserve the natural order of things and kept peace with the gods. That's what they thought back then. But Israel comes in and tells her story and says, no. That's not how it went at all. And that's not our God at all. And it tells a story to communicate about our God, Yahweh. Let me give you a second story. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Everyone heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Everyone heard that story? The story is about the main character, Gilgamesh, who is two-thirds God and one-third human, which how you work that out, I have no idea. 
but he's the strongest and most handsome king of Uruk. And he has been on an adventure in regards to his life. But on this adventure, at one point, in a contest with the gods, he encounters a man named Utnapishtim, who along with his wife were the only ones who survived a great flood that killed everyone else. The rains came as promised, and the whole world was covered with water, killing everything except Utnapishtim and his boat. The boat came to rest on the tip of the mountain of Nasir, where they waited for the waters to subside first releasing a dove, then a swallow, and then a raven to check for dry land. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Utnapishtim then made sacrifices and libations to the gods, and although Enlil was angry that someone had survived his flood, Ea advised him to make him peace. So Enlil blessed Utnapishtim and his wife and granted them everlasting life and took them to live in the land of the gods on the island of Dilmun. Now, totally different story, but you can hear similarities. In fact, if you're familiar with the Genesis account, let me just read to you the Epic of Gilgamesh. Here's just a little section. Let me read it to you and see if it sounds familiar to our story in Genesis 6 to 9. The ship which you shall build, this is the Epic of Gilgamesh, let her dimensions be measured off. Let her width and length be equal. Ten dozen cubits each was the height of her walls. Ten dozen cubits each were the edges around her. Thrice 3,600 measures of pitch I poured in the oven. Thrice 3,600 pitch measures of tar did I pour out inside her. What living creatures I had I loaded upon her, I made go aboard all of my family and kin. Beast of the steep, wild animals of the steep, the sea grew calm, the tempest grew still, the deluge ceased, and I looked at the weather, stillness reigned, and all of mankind had turned into clay. The landscape was flat as a terrace, so I opened the hatch, and daylight fell upon my face, and the boat rested on Mount Nemush. Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. One day, a second day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. A third day, a fourth day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. A fifth day, a sixth day, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, not allowing it to move. When the seventh day arrived, I released a dove to go free. The dove went and returned. No landing place came to view, so it turned back. Then I released a swallow to go free. The swallow went and returned, and no landing place came to view. It turned back. And then I sent a raven to go free, And the raven went forth, saw the ebbing of the waters. It ate, circled, left droppings, which birds do, and it did not turn back. Now, does any of that sound familiar to the Noah story? The stories do differ greatly in main character and deity and plot line, but there is clearly a lot of similarities, and they belong to a type of genre that is typical of the ancient Near Eastern culture's attempt to answer existential questions of life. And Genesis 1 to 11 is Israel's attempt to do just that. And they use the similarity of story to rebuke other theologies and assert their truth in the one true God. And if you get caught up in reading Noah and the flood from a scientist's point of view, you're going to miss the whole point. It wasn't intended for the scientist and the 21st century historian. The point of the flood is to focus on our God and the state of humanity. In the end, unlike the Gilgamesh story where the gods come and feed off of the sacrifices of the main hero, in the story of Noah, our God provides him with food. Instead of humans working and toiling for the sake of the gods, our God blesses Noah and tells him to be fruitful and multiply. Our story points to a God who enters into a covenant with his creature and he makes him a promise. And he puts a rainbow in the sky as a sign of that promise. Every bit of the story is about theology, our God. 
And the point of the story is still to focus on the state of humanity and how everything is screwed up by humanity. If you want to know what the turning point of Genesis 1 to 11, what's all about, it's Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so guess what happened after the flood? Does anyone know the story? What happens after the flood? Noah and his family come out, they make a sacrifice. You know what Noah does next? He drinks too much wine, he gets drunk. And then you know what happens after that? One of his sons, Ham, and it's still not clear exactly what he does, but he uncovers his father's nakedness, which is probably a Hebraic euphemism for something else. So Noah wakes up, and he realizes his nakedness had been somehow uncovered, and he curses his son. You know what the story's trying to point out? How screwed up humanity is. That what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2, we as humans have messed up. This is the theological point of the story. And it will even carry on even further. Genesis chapter 6 verse 18 is interesting. Look at this verse. This is here. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you see this parenthetical note? Ham was the father of who? Do you know who, who Canaan eventually produced? The Canaanites. Do you know who the mortal enemy is of Israel and whose land they're going to take and conquer? The Canaanites. See, later readers, this is a theological point. You know what Israel's trying to say here? All those Canaanites that are our enemy, you know who their ancestor is? Ham. You know what Ham was? A pervert. He's a sexual deviant. That's why that's there. It's making a theological point. Like, those people descended from Ham. Like, that's the point. It's theological. These are the enemy of Israel's. And who are the Israelites? They're descendants of the good brother, Shem. And so the point of the story is you have more curses, more sin, more corruption. That's the point of Noah and the flood. And you miss all of that if you're still trying to figure out scientifically how 7,000 kinds of animals can turn into 50 million different species in 4,000 years' time. Let me cover the last story of Genesis, and I'll wrap this all up. In Genesis chapter 11, you have a story about a tower, a big, a big tower, the Tower of Babel. It says this in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Let me just start there for a moment. The whole world spoke the same language. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And here's the reason why. So that we may make a name for ourselves. What's happening here? What's, what's, the, what's the foundation? It's just pride. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Well, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they had begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it is called Babel. Because where the, there the Lord confused, because Babel in Hebrew means confused. Because the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you just step back for a moment, pretend you're a scientist, specifically and linguist, you're going to struggle. And the reason why is because a study of the history of languages and their origin reveals a completely different picture. 
there's absolutely no evidence that at any time on the earth, everyone spoke the same language. And here, it kind of has this image that God just came down one day and said, okay, you 45 people over there, you guys are now going to speak French, right? Parlez-vous français? Like, that's all of a sudden, just, wow, I was speaking that language, and now I'm speaking French. And then, and then it, and, and these 75 people, you now are going to speak German. And they'll appear angry because it's a very guttural language, but that's, you're now German, and that's the picture you get. And experts will say, there's absolutely no evidence for this single common spoken language on earth, and what typically happens is what we call linguistic evolution, meaning most languages evolve over a long period of time. And so we know languages like Spanish and French and Italian and, and English, they descended from what dead language? Latin. And then you have the Semitic languages like Hebrew and Arabic and Aramaic and they descended from a common language. And then you got the Chinese and the Japanese and Korean. Like, linguistics is complex. And a good, I would contend, if you can't, you're not supposed to read it scientifically. That's not what it's intended for. You're supposed to read it theologically because it's about this. It's hard to see this in English, but when you hear the word babble, it means confused. But it's also related to another word, to a location. What does babble sound like in terms of a, a place? Babylon. Where are the Israelites? They're in Babylonian captivity. Why are they telling this story? As a rebuke to their captors, calling them confused, pointing out their pride and their arrogance as they were an oppressed people in the culture and in the empire of Babylon. It's Israel's way of telling these stories that highlights where they're at and rebuking those who are oppressing them. The Jews are telling their story as a refutation of everything they would hear in Babylon. But the theological point of the story is the escalation of sin and corruption. And the story of the Tower of Babel is a story about human pride. The story is about humanity's continual propensity to go against God's original intent and will. Now, I do need to say this. If I die and go to heaven, and God says, hey, Sam, I'd like you to meet Noah. I'm going to be a little shocked, but I'm going to be just fine. And you are too. Like, if you're like, no, I believe this is a literal scientific, like, I'm good with that. Like, you do not have to take my word for this. If I die and go to heaven and find out that the earth really was only 6,000 years old, I'm going to go, huh, (laughs) got that one wrong. And I might even ask God, if he allows it, well, if the earth is only 6,000 years old, why did you cover it with so much evidence that would suggest it's 4 billion years old? And since you provided so much evidence, you must have wanted us to think it was that old. So I did. What was the point of that? (laughs) If you want to take Genesis literally, I'm totally cool with that. You want it to be a literal historical accounting of the origins of the universe, feel free. Because many people who are way smarter and way more godly than me think the exact same thing. But if you are in that category of people that can't seem to reconcile science with these stories, I'm hoping this might help you. Or if your children or grandchildren grow up and they're struggling through a faith crisis because they don't know how to put these things together, I'm hoping this might help you say to them, it might not have ever been intended for that. That Israel is actually speaking in a familiar ancient Near Eastern genre to tell her stories. And why? Because this is how Israel communicated truth. And the main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to communicate this. Genesis 1 and 2, everything that we see is from God. And he is responsible for all of creation, and he created it good. 
It was a paradise. It was like a perfect garden. There was no sin, no rupture in our relationship with God and one another. And this is what God wants, which then should beg the question from you, well, then what happened? And then Genesis 3 through 11 comes in. And in Genesis 3 through 11, what we get is four stories that tells us this. Humans screwed everything up. Sin has broken out into the earth and marred God's original intent. Really? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you a couple of stories that point to this reality. And then you have Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother. And things are so bad, God actually regrets creating the world and he destroys it with a flood, but rescues Noah and his family, who ends up just repeating the same evil trajectory. And then it closes in the fourth story of the Tower of Babel and humanity's desire through pride to make a name for themselves by reaching to heaven itself. Four stories that are intended for you to say in the end, man, humanity is screwed up. Like we're all messed up. Not that we'd even need much evidence, but sin is a real problem. Sin is killing us, like literally. Isn't there something that could be done about that? And then guess what happens? There is a turn in Genesis. And in my opinion, it's not just a plot turn. This is a shift in genre. No longer borrowing from the creation accounts and flood stories of the ancient Near East, but now this is a historical narrative that picks up with the story of Abraham. And why? Because the entire story of the Bible hinges on this move. You cannot understand and appreciate what's about to happen between God and Abraham unless you first understand the problem. And the problem is, the earth is screwed up. That's what you get out of Genesis 3 through 11. But the answer is what God is about to do through the family of Abraham. Genesis 1 to 11 is just a preamble. A preamble using a familiar genre to simply share the truth that God created everything good, but humanity screwed it all up through sin. But watch what God is about to do. He's about to rescue the earth. He's about to do something about the creation he intended to be good from the very beginning. Watch what he's... That man. What man? That one. (laughs) That old dude. He isn't the best. He isn't the most righteous. He isn't the most powerful. He isn't the most eloquent. Listen, that dude doesn't even have much money. But I'm going to choose him. And through him, I'm going to fix the earth. And I'm going to restore the earth to how it was from the very beginning. To which we should be like, what? This is what happens in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And this is what he's going to do. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And look what he says here. What does it say? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of God's rescue operation. Everything got totally messed up, 3 through 11. But in Genesis chapter 12, we take not just a plot turn, but a genre turn where God is going to step in and he's going to begin to fix what got broken because of our sin. God's going to show up and make Abram a promise. Through you, I will bless the whole world. You're going to have descendants, which, as a side note, is miraculous because Abram is already such an old dude, and his wife is already old. And from nothing, God will speak created life again through Abram and his wife Sarah. And you'll become a great nation. In fact, kings will come from you, and you will have land. And as you just keep reading our story, it's the rescue operation. Abraham will have a son, Isaac. I love the name Isaac. Isaac will have a son, Jacob. 
Jacob's going to have 12 sons, and one of them's name will be Judah. Keep your eyes on Judah and Judah's descendants. God will rescue his people from slavery through Moses, and as a gift, he will give them the law, and the law will be to instruct them on what kind of a people they ought to be, how they should relate to God, and how they should relate to one another, and it's supposed to be a picture of what God intended from the very beginning, that when all of their neighbors saw, they would go, that's what God intended. And through the law and its obedience, it would be a sign of what God wanted from the beginning. And that family of Abraham will grow into a nation, the nation of Israel is what we call it. And then within Israel will come a great king, David. And the Bible tells us he will have God's own heart. And God will enter into a covenant with David and tell him, you know what? Your family line and your dynasty will never end. It will last forever. And from his descendants will come the greatest king humanity has ever known. He will be called the Messiah. And the Messiah will save God's people and rescue them from the problem of sin that we encountered in Genesis 3 through 11. And from that line of Judah, one day came a son. So when you flip into the New Testament, it will say in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because what will he do? He will save his people from their sins. This is God's rescue mission. Now, none of that makes sense unless you get Genesis 3 through 11. Until you understand the problem is Genesis 3 through 11, Jesus doesn't make any sense. It's only when we've come to, oh, in our story, we screwed everything up. We need a Savior. We need somebody who can come and contend with this sin problem. And that's what Genesis 3 through 11 is all about. And then following verse, chapter 12 on to Revelation is God is fixing the earth. And through Jesus, he became a living manifestation of what God intended from the very beginning. That's why in Jesus' ministry, it is a sign of the kingdom of God that what God wants to happen actually happens. When Jesus encounters people who are sick, what does he do? He heals them. When he encounters people who are shut out of the kingdom of God, what does he do? He invites them in, often to the great shock of the religious leaders around, when he encounters people who are tormented and demonized by Satan, who has always been at work to mess up God's intended creation. What does Jesus do? He casts the demons out. How? With the power of his word. That's just like what God did in Genesis 1. It sounds like the creation story where God is bringing about life through the power of his word. Jesus has the power to speak new resurrected life through the power of his voice. He could say to Lazarus, get up. He could stop a funeral procession for a widow in Nain and say, that son of yours who's dead is going to come back to life again. He could say to the dead, wake up. When he encounters sin, whether from a woman caught in adultery or a tax collector extorting money, what does he do? He always brings about grace and forgiveness. Jesus is rescuing the earth. He is inaugurating a new kingdom, the kingdom of his Father that has as its intent to restore what God intended from the very beginning. And I know that kingdom might start like just a mustard seed, but I'm telling you it's going to advance and it's going to expand until one day there is nothing that exists outside of God's kingdom. Jesus himself will make sure of it. He's making everything new. Revelation tells us in 21 verses 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, just like in the garden. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen to what's going to happen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you remember a time in the Bible when there was no death or mourning or crying or pain? It's Genesis 1 and 2. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, write that down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This entire plan of rescue, that entire salvation history, that entire plan of redemption, none of that makes sense unless you understand why. And Genesis 1-11 to sets us up for why. It's the perfect preamble that explains God had a purpose and we screwed it all up. And then Genesis 12 is the, but God will not let our sin have the last word. And then God says, hold my beer, watch this. And see, the scientists don't have the tools to understand that. And this isn't a knock on science. I love science. It is a gift from God. I'm simply saying, if you read it as Bill Nye, you're going to miss the point. You're not exempt. Your life is affected by sin. Your sin, other people's sins against you, and it's left a life broken and shattered, kind of a shadow of death. Sometimes we just feel exhausted and depressed and depleted and at times hopeless and helpless. And I've got good news. Abundant life can be yours again. The power of new life can be yours. That sin problem that's plagued us, Jesus can take care of that for you with grace and mercy and forgiveness. He can take you exactly where you are and through the power of his voice make you entirely new. The Gospels will call it a born-again experience. Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what does it say? The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. How? By saying yes to Jesus. By putting your trust and faith in Jesus. By confessing that he's the son of God and that Messiah that was sent to take away the sins of the world. And I know in your mind you go, yeah, but I'm still struggling with this. And I still got this habit in my life. And I've got this sin that I'm aware of. And I don't have it all together again. And I know, listen, I know. You don't earn this. You don't get to merit this. This is a gift. It's what we call grace. Do not leave here this morning without becoming that new creation. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never had that moment where you've just said, Lord Jesus, I confess you as my Lord and I want to follow you the rest of my life, this is the morning you should do just that. If we're going to dismiss in just a moment and elders will be up front here and people on our prayer team and you could come and ask for prayers for whatever you want. But if you have never had that experience where you just said, I need to say yes to Jesus, I want to encourage you to come down and to say whoever you want, like just find the friendliest face to you and just say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I want to be that new creation and then let them pray for you and guide you into a new life in Jesus. There is a sin problem. That's what Genesis 1 to 11 is about. 
Genesis 12 to Revelation is Jesus is going to take care of that. That is our good news. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you have rescued us, that you didn't leave us in terms of just being a broken creation with no hope, but rather that you have intervened and you have begun the process of putting back together again your creation. And so we come to you in this sort of this in-between time where we recognize we get to taste right now abundant life and new life, and at the same time, we're still affected by that old order that is in process of passing away. Would you give us wisdom to know how to walk in these days as we are in between that time? But we give you thanks that because of your son, Jesus, and what you have done through him, you have provided an answer and a remedy to sin. And so we offer up our sins and say, God, give us your grace and forgive us. We ask in his name. Amen.